0: Today, we are going to be in 2 Timothy, specifically chapter 3 and 4, verse 16 of chapter 3. That's the second time that's happened already. You guys didn't notice that because you were bowed down. But I admit it, it happened once already. Chapter 3, verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 5. Chapter 3, 16 through chapter 4, verse 5 of 2 Timothy. As you guys are turning there, I want to provide a little bit of context for this letter before we, at, before we look in detail at this passage. As best as we can tell, 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter. In it, we see that he is expecting to die soon. We have these words from Paul. He says that he is, I'm sorry, uh, for I am, ready to, it, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. As the title of this letter indicates, it is written to Timothy. In a very real way, Timothy is Paul's spiritual son. They have a very close um, relationship. It seems that Timothy and his mother and grandmother came to faith at some point during Paul's first missionary journey. And then on Paul's second missionary journey, Timothy actually joins he and Silas. This is a really beautiful picture of Paul's early fruits in his first mission coming to fruition in Timothy and his family. And then this young man joining him on his second journey. I think that's really neat. I think it's very cool. It is in this context that Paul gives Timothy the things that he wants him to hold on to after he was gone. In a very real way, this is a father telling his son, a father who knows he's going to die, telling his son, I want to remind you of these things. These are the things you need to hold on to after I'm gone. So it's a very personal and poignant letter. So with these few things in mind, let's go ahead and look at the passage. Starting in verse 16 of chapter 3. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, having itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I've entitled this sermon, What Animates Us. When I think of music, the thing that animates music is the composer. We don't have music without the creative mind and soul to actually give us something to hear. When I was getting my degrees, my undergraduate and my graduate degrees, a huge part of my focus was in performance. And as a performer, my job is to look at what the composer wrote and to accurately transmit the intentions of the composer to the audience. You do that in a couple ways. The most basic ones, obviously, reading the notes in the right rhythms. But there's a lot more to that as well. There's more nuance. Perhaps the melody is rising up, and the harmonies with it are particularly tense. Well, I can do things as a performer to make sure that that drama that the composer is intending is really clearly being transmitted to the audience. Likewise, maybe I have an indication in the music that says a word dolce, which means sweetly. And I can do things as a performer to adjust my technique to make sure that the composer's indication that this part of the music is supposed to be played sweet, that I in fact do that, and the audience perceives that. Well, in a similar way, what has animated Christians and what still animates Christians is the word of God, which has been composed by God. And we have the honor and the privilege to look at his word, to see what it means, to see what his intentions are, to bring it to heart and to memory, and to let it speak honestly to ourselves, and to make sure that when we're telling others about what God's word says, that we are relaying God's intention to them. The first two verses I want to look at are the last two in chapter 3. And I think just generally I could sum these up by Paul is telling Timothy that the Word of God is vital or necessary and it is powerful. Word of God is vital, necessary, and it's powerful. Before we look at the specifics that Paul says um, that the Word of God is profitable for, for doing, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, I want to look at the result Paul says, "What does the word of God accomplish in a person? It makes them complete. It makes them complete. I would say this one general statement: that is, people we cannot be who were recreated we to be without the word of God. We will remain incomplete. I think it's helpful to understand what the definition of a human being is. You're like, why? Why what does that have to do with this?" Well, we have to go back to Genesis and see the created order has God intended. That's a complete human being. That's what it means to be human. And since the fall, humans have been less than that. We have been incomplete. So Paul saying the word of God, what it accomplishes, is to make the man complete, I think, in a real way, is saying it restores us to what God had always intended in the very beginning. But how does it do this? How does the word of God accomplish this? Paul doesn't give an exhaustive list, but he gives some really salient features of what God's word accomplishes. He says that it is profitable for teaching. And I would say that just simply means teaching us what is true. Specifically about who God is, who we are, and why we were created. It teaches us who God is, who we are, and why we were created. And then he goes on and he says it's profitable for reproof and for correction. That's a fancy way of saying the Bible says you got a lot wrong with you. Here they all are. Look at it. And it does it repeatedly. Like from the very beginning. It's like you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. You're wrong. You know, I'm at 1,798 pages in this Bible, and it's still telling me I'm wrong, right? And then it continues. We may be asking ourselves, why? Why does the Word of God do this? I think we need to look at who God is, who we are, and why we were created to appreciate why God's Word cares so much about pointing out our flaws, why Paul says it's useful for reproof and for correction, We can look at the opening pages of Scripture and learn that God is powerful, that he's eternal, that he's incredibly creative, and that he's loving. I think you can learn those four things just in the few opening passages of Scripture. We see that he's powerful, immensely powerful, unimaginably powerful by the fact that he just speaks words and everything we know comes into existence. That's crazy. And notice The word of God is what starts it all. I'm speaking about God's word. I just wanted to make that connection. Um, The other thing is we know that he is eternal. He's not a result of creation, but he spoke and then everything came into existence. And even now we can look around at God's creation, at the cosmos, at everything around us. A New Mexican sunset and sunrise, if you haven't been enjoying that, you've been missing out. We live in a beautiful place We can see that God is the very last word, second to none, the pinnacle of a creative being. He inspires awe. But we also see that he's loving as we look at who we are and why we were made. See, God made us in his image, which among other things, by the way, doesn't mean we look like God, God is spirit, but it means that we have certain abilities, like we can create like God. We can love, we can reason, we can discover things. God doesn't discover things, he knows everything, but he gives us stuff to discover. And so we look at God lovingly creating us, and when we understand why we were put here, I think we see God's love even more, because he created this world that we're in for the purposes of us managing it, Being stewards right off the bat he gives us purpose and meaning that would lead to enjoyment of him we were created to be in relationship with god and to love him and we weren't giving by the way god didn't give us like boring things to do how many of you have been tempted to think that eternity is going to be you on your face singing to the ground that's not true if we want to see what's going to happen in eternity, we need to go back to what God intended in the first place. God called it good. We screwed it up. And he's like, I'm going to fix it, and we'll go back to the beginning, and this time it's going to work. Amen. Because I've taken care of it. Amen. Think about this. God's intended order was to, as, as just an amazing creator, was to give us endless horizons to discover. That sounds like a good way to spend eternity to me. Yeah, to be an absolutely pure relationship with God to sense his presence and to be without any negative things to strive to see the new horizons that God has created that are inexhaustible always seeing and being surprised and awestruck by the beauty of God now that's an eternity that I can get excited about and that's an eternity that the bible presents to us so why do I say all that well because Look at the world we live in now, and it's all messed up. (laughs) Yes. Thank you, Scott. Yeah. (laughs) Um, We see what happens when our faults aren't pointed out. We see what happens when we sin. The results are catastrophic. God presented this to us. He gave it to us, and we rejected it. We said, no. We were deceived by a lie. How many of you have ever wondered why God put the stupid tree in the garden in the first place? I actually think there's a really good and deep theological reason why, and I think we can we can get a lot of information from just looking at what Satan says when he says the knowledge of good and evil. You see, without an opportunity to trust God at his word, there's no real opportunity for enduring and real relationship. A relationship that doesn't have the ability for trust is no relationship at all. So God tells Adam and Eve, I've made you in charge of everything. All this is for you. I made you to be in relationship with me, but this is not for you. This was not what you were created for. This is not your purpose. Only I can handle the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of it, or if you even touch it, you will surely die. Satan comes in and says, eh, God didn't mean that. You're not going to die. He just doesn't want you to be like him, and we fall for it. And ever since then, humanity has been telling God, "Thank you very much. We'll handle it. We'll be God of my own life. Please leave me alone." The results of that has broken everything we've seen, and so we live in a concre- the world that we live in is a sad story. It's tragic. And so just like a parent who's worth their salt will tell a child who's about to do something or is considering doing something that will kill them, that parent is going to say, don't do that, I love you. Why do they say it? Because they love him or her. God's the same way. His word goes out of its way to constantly point out what's wrong, not because God's like the massive party pooper, but because God loves us. So, Paul's telling us that um, it teaches us who God is, who we are, what we're created for, and that it's profitable for training, um, sorry, for reproof and correction, and that it's profitable for training us in righteousness. Or another way to say it is it makes us change to think, to act, and to live differently. And then he says, because God's word does all these things, it makes us complete, makes us complete. We'll unpack this in a little more detail later on, but I want to, I want to just make a general statement that as a Christian, we're going to say, as Christians, we'll just say, well, duh. But when God speaks, things happen. Like, Yeah, God speaks, things happen. But I think (laughs) there's a name in. I I think whenever we we consider God's word coming in power, we often think about these signs of miraculous wonders: parting of the Red Sea, manna from heaven, a donkey talking, the blind being made to see, lame being made to walk, lepers healed, the dead raised. One particular miraculous account of this type of power displayed is the virgin birth. In Luke chapter 1, Mary is told, hey, you're going to have a son. She's like, I'm a virgin. How is that possible? And the angel replies, with God, nothing is possible. I actually really prefer the NIV's translation. It says, for no word from God will ever fail. No word from God will ever fail. So when we see God's word coming in power and doing these things, it is awe-inspiring. It's amazing. But equally as amazing and often overlooked is what it does to people's hearts. Equally as amazing and often overlooked is what the power of God's word does to people's hearts. I think this is what Paul has in view here, by the way. If we go to Hebrews 4, chapter 12, we have a statement talking about this type of effect. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and morrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Often when we hear this verse quoted, it's usually just the first part. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. But I think we miss out when we don't focus on the end of it. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I would say that God's word is the only thing that can reveal to us our own nature, who we really are. Both the beautiful and the bad, by the way, doesn't play favorites. And it also shouldn't allow us to fall into extreme ditches. On the one high on the one hand, say that humanity is just a bunch of pieces of trash, garbage, dirt, and we're worthless. And, bleh. and on the other side, you know what? We're good. We've stumbled a little bit every once in a while, you know, the rape of Nanking and the Holocaust, you know, that happened, but it's just a little bit of a blip. The Bible doesn't allow us to think that naively or arrogant either about ourselves. And it also doesn't allow us to insult his creative goodness by saying we're worthless. I hear all too often one of the two extremes. Instead, the Bible says that we are valuable and that we were lovingly made, not pieces of trash. But the other thing it says is that we have a systemic sin problem and left to our own devices, we will spiral further and further down until the human creature no longer has any resemblance to what God created in the first place. Some Christian thinkers have said to be truly human is to go back to that originally created state. One of the most I find the most profound statements in all of scripture is in Jude. Jude says that people will blaspheme what they do not understand. They will blaspheme what they do not understand and will be destroyed by, like unreasoning animals, all that they understand instinctively. Boy, if that's not a prophecy about where post-enlightenment thought has gotten us in 21st century culture, I don't know what is. Left to our own devices, we will spiral further and further down until the human creature no longer has any resemblance to what God first created. We have an intuition that something's not right, that the world we live in could be different, that it should be different, that it's broken. And Scripture teaches us another thing. It teaches us why. It teaches us who God is, who we are, what we were created for, and why the world is the way that it is. And as Stephen said on Wednesday, when he said, I believe the Bible intersects our reality better than anything, I agree. (laughs) It's why, and hopefully why you, in part, are followers of Christ. It's because of that truth, because you see how the Bible does do that. I think if you were to generalize, you could say, God's word is telling us we need our purpose back. We need our meaning back back we don't need comfort or happiness i really have come to hate the phrase life liberty and the pursuit of happiness that's a recipe for misery by the way it's like i wish like life liberty and the pursuit of happiness well that's knock yourself out c.s lewis i think has the most profound quote i've ever heard about this and i think this is from mere christianity it's true in his time true in our time he says in religion as in war and everything else Comfort, or happiness, is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will neither get comfort or truth. Only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair That's been proven out time and time again. We need our purpose and our meaning restored to us. Paul is not saying all these things make you super happy. He's saying it makes you complete. It restores to you your purpose and your meaning. Because this is true, because this is the power of of the word of God, to teach us, to correct us, to make us different, to make us complete, he then moves to a thought in chapter uh, chapter 4 verse 1 he gives timothy this incredibly solemn charge he says i charge you in the presence of god and of christ jesus who is to judge the living and the dead by the way just in case you forgot and by his appearing in his kingdom preach the word i don't think paul is lecturing timothy here he's just reminding him of the of the gravity of the task as a preacher You are to preach the word. It's kind of a cause and effect thing. If these things happen and we're truly following God, what else is there to do? We have to preach it. He then goes on after he says this in the second half of verse 2 to tell Timothy to stay focused and measure everything against the word. Stay focused and measure everything against the word. After he says, preach the word, he says, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. (sighs) I don't like that part. I wish I could be impatient. A lot of pastors don't like that part, by the way. And the fact that Paul says complete. Why? Like sometimes patience. But it's complete patience. Because... People will have itching ears and they will seek after philosophies and worldviews that affirm their passions, what they want to do. Many things have, do, and will attack the message and the messengers of God. Paul is saying this. He says, It's happened to me. Earlier on, he talks about how he's been abandoned. By the way, Paul's been abandoned a lot in his life. He's just left alone. He's like, You're crazy, dude. It's like you went and got stoned, and then went back to the city that just stoned you to preach the gospel. It's like that's, nah, that's not for me. He says at the end of chapter four that everyone's left him; the only one with him is Luke, as he's expecting his execution. The only one left with him is Luke. Paul understands a fact that when people are attacked, we will likely falter, and we will often cave. We will likely falter, and we will often cave. God speaks to us about facing attacks outside the church elsewhere in Scripture. Frighteningly, this is not what this passage is about. This is about attacks inside the church. It's tempting to read this laundry list of problems, especially if you read the verse of, uh, especially if you read the verses at the beginning of chapter three and say, this is talking about non, or p- p- people who aren't in the church. But Paul's actually saying these are people within the church. Paul is saying you're going to face not only attacks outside, but inside, that are going to try and take away the validity, the venom of the word of God and its effectiveness. We can see um, in verse 5 of chapter 3, as, Actually, starting in verse 4, he says, people will be treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Boy, that's a mental image. Lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. So These are people in the church who appear godly, but deny its power. I think that means when Paul says deny its power, I think that means deny the word, deny the power of the word, deny the truth of the word. Now, when we think of people in our times who have the appearance of godliness, I think we, uh, but who are denying the power of the, of the word, we may think, and accurately so, people who are caving on moral stances, maybe the sanctity of life or God's design for sexuality how all sorts of pastors and churches are making concessions against what the Bible says is right. You know, that's, that's true, but it can be dangerous to only focus on that. You see, the sound teaching that people don't want to endure because they want their own passions affirmed isn't just about what's morally right or wrong. It's also about what's going on in here. Sound teaching from the Bible is also about our affections. The greatest commandment is not about social justice or political influence. It is about the orientation and affection of the heart. We do not do good works to be complete. We are changed by the power of God's word so that we can be equipped for good works, And I fear that too many churches have this exactly backwards. Listen to what Ezekiel says in chapter 36, verses 26 to 27. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and i will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and i will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules real change happens when god when god's word is received Real change happens when God's word is deceived. When Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors as yourself, that starts here. And the results are an outpouring of that. So, real change happens when the word of God is received. Not when society has rules, laws, and taboos that more or less align with biblical ethics. That's just a nice way to have some whitewashed tombs in society. Again, I fear too many churches have forgotten this. I feel the temptation to forget it, looking around us, seeing where society is going. It's easy to be animated by fear and not by the word of God. So results follow change. People can't be coerced to real change. We need to also remember a little bit of church history. That the church exploded with zero political influence for 400 years. We haven't been a nation that long. You see, the church in the early Roman Empire was in the best of times ignored, and in the worst of times, heavily persecuted and tortured. But what happened? The gospel spread. How did it spread? But Because the word of God is empowered by the spirit of God and it has real power. Remember what the angel said to Mary. No word from God will ever fail. Not even one of the mightiest empires on earth in the history of, earth, of all of our history. Well, that was a bad sentence. In <laughs> all of history could stop the power of the word of God. It always does what it sets out to accomplish. Paul tells Timothy that God's word must be his barometer on everything. And when everything seems upside down, to be patient, to endure suffering, to be ready to evangelize. Part of this application is to consider how we engage people in our society that are our enemies or that are a threat or we perceive as a threat. Paul says a couple of chapters earlier that we are to be kind and loving to them, not quarrelsome. Because if we preach the word to them, they may come to a knowledge of the truth. I want to move into a a time of application. Generally, I want to say that we need to understand the power and purpose of the word and let that animate us. We need to understand the power and purpose of the word and let that animate us. We must not be animated by rage or preference, but by the love of Christ that the word has implanted in us. The word is broader than just positive change, though. Sometimes we think, I, th- I think we're tempted to think that it's, it's all about doing something Positive. But remember, the word teaches us the whole character of God, which means we have to consider other things than just God's mercy and his love. The whole character of God, among other things, is, yes, his love, but also his, and his mercy, but also his justice, power, wisdom, patience, the fact that he is unchanging. Sometimes we can start to doubt the power of God's word because we don't see it changing people. Maybe you have a family member you've been praying for for a long time and they haven't come to Christ. Maybe you go out. We're trying to evangelize. We're trying to meet our neighbors. And ninety-nine, nine, nine point nine, nine nine percent of the time, people are rejecting it or they don't care. That doesn't mean we give up. And I think it's also important that we realize something that Jesus said in John. This is John chapter 12, verse 48. Jesus says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. This means that we can bring the word and know it will always do a work. Always. It will never fail. Now, it may not be the outcome that we or God himself wants, but it will always do what it has the power to do. We need to remember God's heart as proclaimed. These are God's own words in Ezekiel, chapter 33, where he says, I do not desire or take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but I would have everyone turn and come to a knowledge of repentance. See, the power of the word of God has one of two possible effects generally. If we are presented with God's word, with the truth of it, and we receive it, and the power of that word is salvation and to be made complete and to have the abundant life now and to have that wonderful eternity that we were talking about at the beginning of this sermon. But tragically, if that word is rejected, it still works, it still has power, but it's the power of judgment. I think that's both an encouraging thing and a sobering thing. It's sad. It's tragic, but it's also real and it's also true. And God acknowledges it as much. In the passage of Scripture in Ezekiel that I just mentioned, He does not desire the death of the wicked, He is heartbroken. So, as we go out as messengers, we should know that we carry the only thing that changes people into what they were meant to be. That's pretty exciting. And guys, people are literally killing themselves because they don't have it, because they see no meaning, because they see no purpose. One of the great ironies of this pandemic has been that we have been forced to stay indoors and that a people, an age group, ages 15 to 25 in particular, who are barely affected at all by the pandemic, are being affected by something else. Did you guys know, as a, as, a, as a professor in a couple of colleges and as a youth, as a student minister, one of the things that I'm always keenly aware of is that the, the, the most likely thing that is going to take one of my students from me is suicide. Ages 15 to 25, their number one cause of death is suicide. They need this. They need purpose. They need meaning. They don't need social media and all the streaming devices. They don't need dang cell phones. They need to be told that God created you lovingly and that he wants you. I want to encourage us not to be sent into states of panic or stress or to be animated because of political or social change. But like Paul... Be animated by the word of God. All scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray.